Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Catholic Halos podcast. I'm Veronica Ambuel, Director of Communications for the Diocese of Colorado Springs, and I'm joined today by Deacon Patrick Jones, who's an award-winning author of Catholic fiction and the founder of Catholic Halos, and Deacon Doug Flynn, who is our uh, Chancellor and General Counsel for the Diocese. Uh, before we start our discussion today, Deacon Patrick, would you lead us in an opening prayer? In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. So, um, for uh, today's podcast, we uh, are going to start our discussion with a story that's been really all over the news. Um, in fact, I I think uh, just just a few minutes ago, I um, saw in an email that it has now made it to um, overseas to England um, that the um, that in late January a um, a teacher in the Archdiocese of Denver, uh, one of their Catholic elementary schools, um, was uh, fired uh, for being um, in a same-sex relationship. And so um, the as I mentioned, the story has gotten a ton of coverage, not just here in Colorado, but nationwide. And the, the teacher has been um, interviewed at length, uh, you know, uh, in a variety of newspaper and television articles. So, um, you know, um, I, th- I think uh, the reason that we wanted to discuss this topic is, for one thing, she says in several places that um, she didn't think that being in a same-sex relationship was in, incompatible with the Catholic faith. And, um, you know, so we, we thought it'd be good to try to get some clarification on that. Um, you know, specifically the idea that um, it, it is true that um, um, a person who uh, is, experiences same-sex attraction can, um, you know, fully fully participate in um, the sacraments and the life of the church. However, um, you know, the church does draw the distinction between that and be actually being in a same-sex relationship, which would, would not be, um, you know, incompatible with, with the Catholic faith. So it seemed like a good teaching opportunity, among other things, um, and, uh, you know, especially since, um, the, again, the fact that she was working in a Catholic school, um, you, you know, and I think what the Archdiocese of Denver has pointed out is that, you know, all the teachers in their schools uh, sign an agreement saying that they will uphold Catholic teaching. Which makes her claim of ignorance all the more puzzling uh, <laughs> if she's signing this <clears throat> every year and if the diocese isn't pointing it out 
somehow making it clear, uh, hopefully our diocese is doing that, um, to, with its teachers. Um, but you make an excellent point, Veronica. I, I thought it was worth reading because she actually proves our point as, as sin often incidentally does, uh, because she says it Catholicism is the faith I was raised in. And I wanted to teach in a Catholic school because I wanted to share those values that I learned and the experience that I had with future students. Okay. So she's wanting to share her, what she sees as Catholic values, but they're not actually Catholic values. That's precisely why we can't have somebody who's committing mortal sin teaching our children in a position of authority to teach. She does an, an amazing job of making our point for us. Um, and she continues, I have a hard time understanding how being in a same sex relationship or someone's sexual orientation hinders your ability to do that. Well, that's a shepherding issue. That's an education issue. Um, and we do need to get better at, at educating, uh, about our faith. There's, there's a huge need for that. And, and to start, it's how do we love our children? Um, so that they have the most opportunity to say yes to Christ and to his offer of eternal life. And there was a stunning study that just came out today from, uh, Pew Research. And it says that, uh, 64% of parents, of Catholic parents, view it as either somewhat important or not too important or not at all important that their children have similar religious beliefs when they are adults. And if you think about that, if I was to say, eh, I don't really care whether my kids grow up believing the Catholic faith. What I'm actually saying is I don't really care whether my children gain eternal life or eternal death. Well, and uh, yeah, along those lines too, I mean, um, I, I think, um, one of the things that jumped out at me, uh, in reading the media coverage of the story was that, um, the, the idea that it was um, that it was okay if it, it, in her mind it was okay if she um, was in a same-sex relationship as long as um, none of the students knew about it or the school didn't know about it and you know but but I mean it's it's really, a private matter yeah exactly and I mean the, the there thing is, is no private sin is one of the things we need to understand. Right. You know, the whole concept of unity of life. And, and again, we know it goes way beyond just this issue. I mean, um, uh, because we just had the state of the union address, um, you know, the, the issue of um, uh, Joe Biden and his fervent support for abortion is, is once again, front and center, you know, it's, but it's the same kind of thing. Um, you know, um, people have been 
led to led to believe that it is okay to um like you you know uh have a private faith life and then like a different life in in public you know um and 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 it's okay if you um it, it, it's okay if the two kind of kind of clash well, because yes we should probably explain why is it not okay because we often hear it's not okay. There is no such thing as private sin. But why is that? And the answer is really simple. Sin makes us deaf, blind, dumb, and stupid. And we see this over and over again in the the Gospels uh, as Jesus heals those that are in various states of um, needing corporal healing. But it also reflects the state of their sin. Uh, and that if I am committing a mortal sin, I cannot see the goodness of Christ's full revelation and it will affect every one of my relationships. It will harm every one of my relationships, even, and especially if I commit that sin privately, because I don't want people to know what my sins are. No one does. That's why confession is private. And by the way, go to confession. <laughs> but, but sin harms everyone. There is a story uh, that I was sharing with someone uh, earlier today. And I don't remember which emperor it was or which ruler it was, but it was back in the early days of the church, maybe the 200s or the 300s. And this ruler had done something to harm the church and to harm the church community. And by church, I really do mean the physical building of the church and the pastor who I think, you know, ended up being a bishop or a martyr or all of the above uh, told this ruler publicly, you are not permitted to step foot into this church until you serve your penance and publicly repent and made him sit outside literally on the steps of the church and confess his sin to all the people who were going in before he he was let in and i just opined to this individual like i have enough trouble with private confession what if I, what if we went back to public confession <laughs> yeah thank thank heaven that uh, the the rubrics of confession have evolved through time <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, Deacon Doug, but that brings up an interesting point though, because, you know, and I know I'm, I'm just stealing, stealing from other people that I've heard, uh, comment on this, but, but there is, we, we do have that need to confess. And, and, you know, the thing is that so often people who are, you know, quote unquote horrified by the idea of confessing their sins to a priest, you know, will go on to like a talk show or on social media, um, TikTok. you know, yeah. And, 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 or, or, um, I, I feel like as a woman, I can say this to their, um, uh, local beauty salon and, um, blab, you know, everything, uh, all sorts of personal stuff that you really wish uh, you're like, Oh man, I, I, could I not hear this? So, um, <laughs> you know, there, the, yes. It, I mean, I, I am very grateful for, um, you know, the seal of the confessional and the ability to um, confess privately. 
but yet it kind of shows that uh we we do have this we we do have this need for um confession and forgiveness and how wonderful it is that the the priest can absolve us but um, but Dr. Phil can he do that <laughs> confessing to him does that do us any good you know i i mean it may earn us more money i don't know but yeah it it's <laughs> it's uh I mean, it's just interesting, you know, because um, we're we're a very schizophrenic society in that sense. You know, we talk about privacy, 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 but yet, and and it's you know, it it touches back onto this this initial news story that we were mentioning because it was a social media post that apparently brought um, this this teacher's um, situation to the attention of um, of the school. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, but, but it, I, I think, again, the, the whole concept of unity of life, um, you know, you do, you do kind of notice that there's, um, in, in the modern day, there's this mentality, like, I can post something on social media, like a tweet um, about somebody that I would never say to their face, you know? Um, and, uh, is that why I'm so prevalent in your timeline? <laughs> What's a timeline? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. We've all had to look at pictures of your grandson, Doug. No, just kidding. But anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, I think, um, it, it actually has been like, um, a lot of people, myself included, I, I would have to say, like, um, have had to maybe even sometimes learn the hard way how social media affects relationships and ha how it can um, sometimes, you know, come back to haunt us because we we don't always know who's who's seeing it. But um, but even beyond that, the whole idea, you know, that again, I can present one face in one area and then like a different face in another. Um, you know, I, I know as, as parents, we of course have to be very careful about the example that we um, give to our kids in that regard, you know, like even, you know, things like, um, do I, do I go to the, go to mass and then, you know, come home and say nasty things about the priest or, you know, something like that. Um, those, those are lessons that were for, you know, for good or for ill, um, teaching our kids about how we, th that we don't just, um, you know, it's, it kind of goes back to that old saying who, and I don't know who said it, but, you know, ca character is revealed in what we do when no one is looking. And I, and I think that's, um, mm kind of where where part of this whole uh situation got mm, out of hand in a sense you know is that some, some again you know somehow in this woman's upbringing she was told that it, it's it's okay to do things um and just 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 hide them uh and that and that's a disintegration of faith. 
with daily life. And you can't be, you can't live Catholic and be disintegrated where there's this vast difference between what you, between church belief and the decisions that I make in my daily life. They need to be integrated. Faith needs to be integrated into, okay, we come home from mass and yeah, I'm frustrated with something that somebody did along the way, be it the priest or uh, somebody in the congregation or the, the um, drive home. But I need to reveal to my family and to myself how to, how does a saint handle those situations and pray for the people involved and, um, and start there. And I think we need to remember, first of all, let's hold this teacher in prayer because she is in a storm that I don't know that she fully understands. Um, and so is everyone who says, I'm going to make myself in my image. I'm not going to accept the image that God gave me. Um, and I wanted to, I, I saw an amazing quote, uh, that, that came out today also, um, from 1969 from, uh, Eves Conger. And I, I want to link this whole issue to something we've talked about in the past, which is Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi. As we worship, so we believe, and so we live. And remember, this is written in 1969. I don't know that it could be written today. Um, but he says, the conservative character of the liturgy allows it to preserve and transmit intact values whose importance one era may have forgotten but which the following era is happy to find intact and preserved to live from it new. Where would we be if liturgical conservatism had not resisted the taste of the late middle ages for sensitive devotions? And I'm not sure what those are. The individualistic reasonable and moralizing imperatives of the 18th century. And we can dive into what those are, but they're the roots of modernism. And then the criticisms of the 19th century, the subjective philosophies of the modernist era. And he continues, thanks to the liturgy, everything that has been preserved, everything has been preserved and transmitted to us. <laughs> Let us not expose ourselves to incurring in 60 years the reproach of having squandered the sacred heritage of Catholic communion as it unfolds in the slow unfolding of time. And reading that, I was struck by we're I think we're in the midst of, or we're coming up on the, uh, the re, uh, what is it? The re revivification, the re revitalizing. What's, what's the, uh, Oh, the Eucharist re revival. The revival. Thank you. <laughs> My Catholic brain still can't wrap around that word. Um, and when we do liturgy poorly, 
and we do liturgy against, we do liturgy in our own image instead of the image that's been handed on to us by Christ through the church, through 2000 years of praying the liturgy, uh, we're doing it wrong. And the fruit of that ends up being confusion in how we worship, what we believe and how we live. And we're seeing that in this example and all sorts of other examples. And it goes back to some of the podcasts we've had earlier of, okay, well, what does Vatican II actually say? And uh, we need to go back and look at, okay, what's the proper role of Latin? What's the proper role of sacred music? And which way should the priest face and why? Um, Because they have a deep, core impact on us knowing who we are as a people. And if we liturgy poorly, if we worship poorly, we will believe poorly and we will live poorly. And this is the fruit of it. Well, that being said, I, you know, as we were talking before the show, I mean, we, we know that, um, God is, is always um, calling people back, you know, and, and um, calling them to repentance and that. Um, We're you, one good confession away from being a good Catholic again. <laughs> right, right. You know, and we were talking, um, we were talking obviously about the example of um, St. Monica, uh, who uh, was the mother of the person who later became St. Augustine and, um, and how, you know, she prayed for 30 years that he would um, kind of um, abandon his immoral lifestyle and, uh, you know, re- um, uh, return to the to the church. And, uh, you know, this was in like North Africa back in the what the 300s or something. So, um, you know, we, we definitely don't want to give the impression that an- anybody is... Um, yeah, outside of, you know, uh, or, or not, not, um, uh, that, that, that God, we, we definitely want to say that God's mercy is, is, is always there, you know, and, and, uh, we were, one, one of the things we were discussing was, um, the fact that I, about, uh, I think maybe over a decade ago now, uh, one of the things that Bishop Sheridan did was he, um, he, uh, kind of, um, uh, gave his blessing to a group called uh, Praying Prodigals Home, where um, basically it's, you know, just a network of people in the diocese who are praying for friends and relatives who have, um, have fallen away from the church. And then they would have a a mass each August uh, at the, um, at the, usually at the cathedral and uh, on, on the feast of, of St. Monica. And, um, and then they would usually have, um, a speaker afterwards, you know, that oftentimes would be, um, recounting, uh, you know, a conversion story of, of some sort, you know, so, uh, we, you know, as you pointed out, Deacon Patrick, I think the, yeah, the main thing we need to do, um, at this point is, um, pray for, for that, that teacher that she, comes to understand just uh, why it was necessary for the archdiocese to, to take that action. Um, And, you know, but also too, that uh, we, 
we realize, you know, that we, we don't ever give up on, on anybody. Um, and, uh, you know, I, one of, I didn't go to every praying prodigals home, uh, mass, but, uh, one of the ones that really made an impression on me was hearing, um, uh, father, uh, one, one of the priests in our diocese who was a convert to the faith, um, talk about his, his father who, um, had a, a very, I, I mean, really colorful life in a variety of ways, but, um, uh, his, his mother w- was a, a woman of faith, not, not Catholic, but a, a woman of deep faith. And she, of course, you know, was, was doing everything she could to, um, uh, get him to embrace Christianity. He basically, I, I, I guess, had kind of declared himself to be an atheist. And uh, one time she invited her minister from church over to the house, like for lunch or something. And um, her husband, in kind of like an act of defiance, um, like dressed in his most ratty um uh, <laughs> uh clothes and and um like apparently like threw cigarettes all over the place and you know t- to try to appear as degenerate as possible and and you know and and after many years though um uh, shortly before he died he did um uh convert and and actually I think um may may have been baptized um by by a priest so you know like we, we, you know, we can sometimes be shocked by things that we hear, but we always have to remember that, um, uh, so many of our greatest saints, like, like St. Augustine, you know, um, were very, very rebellious and, um, hostile, you know, uh, to, to the faith because they, uh, didn't, you know, just didn't want to, um, changed their lifestyle. And, and, uh, it's, it's great to hear these stories because I think, um, they, they give us a lot of hope. Well, circling back Deacon Patrick, to your comment about only being one good confession away from being back in the, uh, full communion with the church, a priest told me a story, uh, of him visiting the bedside of an old man who was, uh, in hospice or, soon to be dying and asking him if uh, he wanted to make his confession and the man cursed and and spewed a bunch of things about how bad the church was and how bad priests were and how he would never want to be any part of that uh, ever. And the priest told the story, told me that he just pulled up a chair and, and put it up close to the man's face and sat down and didn't say anything. And the man looked at him and said, what, what do you think you're doing? And he's saying, well, I just, I just want to see somebody go to hell. I've seen a lot of people go to heaven, but I've never seen anyone go to hell before. And <laughs> the man then made a good confession. <laughs> oh, well, when you put it that way. <laughs> uh, <it's> clever. <laughs> and as, as, as one of our other priests w- would say, if it's not a true story, it's well imagined. <laughs> It contains truth beyond whether it was true or not. Exactly. The yep. uh, the thing that strikes me is how do we shepherd, and it's not just 
I mean, any sin that we commit is us saying, I, I'm, I'm going my way. Mm-hmm. I don't trust that God is God and therefore I'm who God says I am and I'm who the church says I am. I don't trust that. I'm going to go my way. And God will honor that choice if we make it. Mm-hmm. And the more we make it, the harder it is not to keep making it and making it deeper and worse and becoming more deaf, blind, dumb, and stupid. And how do we shepherd each other? And that's the purpose of a halo like, like this. Examine the people in your life that you learn wisdom from and you, you hear uh, snippets of faith in their stories and they encourage you and they help you learn, well, wait, Maybe I'm not seeing something here right. Maybe I'm deaf, blind, dumb, and stupid, and they're seeing something I shouldn't. And make more connection intentionally and and be intentional about that halo because saints travel in halos and we're all called to become saints. Um, And the uh, one of the things that struck me in, in the question of, well, how do we shepherd people in whatever sin they're in and out of that sin toward holiness. And it was, uh, I, I went back to the, uh, the front of the prayer book series that we've done. Um, the first spiritual work of mercy is to admonish the sinner. And there's three conditions for doing this. The first one is that they're committing a mortal sin. And so we need to dive in and understand, well, what is a mortal sin? But in simple terms, it's a sin that severs us utterly from God. Um, It's not just an oops. It's an intentional mortal severing. Uh, I'm going my way and blowing off God and blowing off my gender that God gave me is one of those. Um, That. Uh, whoever's doing the shepherding or the admonishing of the sinner has an authority or influence over that person. So it's not just the random stranger that you see walking down uh, the, the the road or in the grocery store. Um, and th- that you're reasonably sure or you have assurance that you, what you're going to say or do is going to help them get better, not worse. Um, and so as soon as you know, it's going to be, make them worse or is likely to make them worse, you back off and you go to the prayer of St. Monica. Um, and so we're always able to do something. Um, we're never helpless and turning to our, uh, our priests, uh, our pastors and our bishop to, to help us know what does it look like to shepherd us out of sin toward Christ? Uh, that's, that's, I think a huge part of, uh, the Eucharistic revival and the need for confession. Well, and I'll just throw in really quick before we finish up that, uh, you know, if, if we are, um, you know, in a position where we we're going to have to like make what St. Jose Maria would call, you know, a fraternal correction, um, we also want to pray to that person's guardian angel first, you know, that they be re- receptive and that, um, you know, always have to remember that the guardian angel uh, can, can really um, 
make a big difference as to whether, you know, the person truly kind of hears what we're saying or um, just kind of closes, closes themselves off. So what was that? <laughs> the angel of God, my guardian. In most here. cases, no. <laughs> <laughs> then well, should it done, be done by snark? <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, we are over time for today, so um, just remind everyone real quickly that you can listen to this episode and all past episodes of Catholic Halos on. Um, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and several other platforms. So feel free to uh, check us out there and subscribe. Um, uh, Deacon Doug, would you lead us in a closing prayer? Certainly. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, benedictus fructus ventris tu Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc in anora mortis nostre. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Catholic Halos podcast.